Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, two stories from H.P. Lovecraft. The first one, which he wrote in 1920, is called From Beyond. Our narrator joins a scientist named Tillinghast, who has created a device which emits a resonance wave that stimulates the human pineal gland, which allows the subject to perceive a reality far beyond our imagination. And now, our story. From Beyond Horrible beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend, Crawford Tillinghast. I had not seen him since that day, two months and a half before, when he had told me toward what goal his physical and metaphysical researches were leading, when he had answered my awed and almost frightened remonstrances by driving me from his laboratory and his house in a burst of fanatical rage. I had known that he now remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with that accursed electrical machine, eating little and excluding even the servants, but I had not thought that a brief period of ten weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grow thin, and it is even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if added to this there be a repellent unkemptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair white at the roots, and an unchecked growth of pure white beard on a face once clean-shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. But such was the aspect of Crawford Tillinghast on the night his half-coherent message brought me to his door after my weeks of exile. Such the specter that trembled as it admitted me, candle in hand, and glanced furtively over its shoulder, as if fearful of unseen things in the ancient lonely house set back from Benevolent Street. That Crawford Tillinghast should ever have studied science and philosophy was a mistake. These things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action. Despair, if he fail in his quest, and terrors unutterable and unimaginable if he succeed. Tillinghast had once been the prey of failure, solitary and melancholy, but now I knew, with nauseating fears of my own, that he was the prey of success. I had indeed warned him ten weeks before, when he burst forth with his tale of what he felt himself about to discover. He had been flushed and excited then, talking in a high and unnatural, though always pedantic, voice. What do we know, he had said, of the world and the universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few, and our notions of surrounding objects infinitely narrow. We see things only as we are constructed to see them, and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos, yet other beings, with a wider, stronger, or different range of senses, might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life, which lie close at hand, yet can never be detected with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. I am not joking. Within twenty-four hours, that machine near the table will generate waves 
acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges. Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall see that at which dogs howl in the dark and that at which cats prick up their ears after midnight. We shall see these things and other things which no breathing creature has yet seen. We shall overleap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion, peer to the bottom of creation. When Tillinghast said these things, I remonstrated, for I knew him well enough to be frightened rather than amused. But he was a fanatic and drove me from the house. Now he was no less a fanatic, but his desire to speak had conquered his resentment, and he had written me imperatively in a hand I could scarcely recognize. As I entered the abode of the friend so suddenly metamorphosed to a shivering gargoyle, I became infected with the terror which seemed stalking in all the shadows. The words and beliefs expressed ten weeks before seemed bodied forth in the darkness beyond the small circle of candlelight, and I sickened at the hollow, altered voice of my host. I wished the servants were about, and did not like it when he said they had all left three days previously. It seemed strange that old Gregory, at least, should desert his master without telling as tried a friend as I. It was he who had given me all the information I had of Tillinghast after I was repulsed in rage. Yet I soon subordinated all my fears to my growing curiosity and fascination. Just what Crawford Tillinghast now wished of me, I could only guess but that he had some stupendous secret or discovery to impart, I could not doubt. Before, I had protested at his unnatural pryings into the unthinkable. Now that he had evidently succeeded to some degree, I almost shared his spirit, terrible though the cost of victory appeared. Up through the dark emptiness of the house, I followed the bobbing candle in the hand of this shaking parody on man. The electricity seemed to be turned off, and when I asked my guide, he said it was for a definite reason. It would be too much. I would not dare, he continued to mutter. I especially noted his new habit of muttering, for it was not like him to talk to himself. We entered the laboratory in the attic, and I observed that detestable electrical machine glowing with a sickly, sinister, violet luminosity. It was connected with a powerful chemical battery, but seemed to be receiving no current for I recalled that in its experimental stage it had sputtered and purred when in action. In reply to my question, Tillinghast mumbled that this permanent glow was not electrical in any sense that I could understand. He now seated me near the machine, so that it was on my right, and turned a switch somewhere below the crowning cluster of glass bulbs. The usual sputtering began, turned to a whine, and terminated in a drone so soft as to suggest a return to silence. Meanwhile, the luminosity increased, waned again, then assumed a pale, outre color or blend of colors which I could neither place nor describe. Tillinghast had been watching me and noted my puzzled expression. Do you know what that is? he whispered. That is ultraviolet. He chuckled oddly at my surprise. You thought ultraviolet was invisible, and so it is. But you can see that and many other invisible things. 
now. End of side four. Change side selector switch. This book is continued on the next cassette. Side five. Dagon and other macabre tales by H. P. Lovecraft. Continuing with From Beyond on page ninety-three. Listen to me. The waves from that thing are waking a thousand sleeping senses in us, senses which we inherit from eons of evolution, from the state of detached electrons to the state of organic humanity. I have seen truth, and I intend to show it to you. Do you wonder how it will seem? I will tell you. Here, Tillinghast seated himself directly opposite me, blowing out his candle. And staring hideously into my eyes, your existing sense organs, ears first, I think, will pick up many of the impressions, for they are closely connected with the dormant organs. Then there will be others. You have heard of the pineal gland. I laugh at the shallow endocrinologist, fellow dupe, and fellow parvenu of the Freudian. That gland is the great sense organ of organs. I have found out. It is like sight in the end, and transmits visual pictures to the brain. If you are normal, that is the way you ought to get most of it. I mean, get most of the evidence from beyond. I looked about the immense attic room with the sloping south wall, dimly lit by rays which the everyday eye cannot see. The far corners were all shadows, and the whole place took on a hazy unreality, which obscured its nature and invited the imagination to symbolism and phantasm. During the interval, the Tillinghast was silent. I fancied myself in some vast and incredible temple of long dead gods, some vague edifice of innumerable black stone columns, reaching up from a floor of damp slabs to a cloudy height beyond the range of my vision. The picture was very vivid for a while, but gradually gave way to a more horrible conception—that of utter, absolute solitude in infinite, sightless, soundless space. There seemed to be a void, and nothing more. And I felt a childish fear, which prompted me to draw from my hip pocket the revolver I always carried after dark, since the night I was held up in East Providence. Then. From the farthermost regions of remoteness, the sound softly glided into existence. It was infinitely faint, subtly vibrant, and unmistakably musical, but held a quality of surpassing wildness which made its impact feel like a delicate torture of my whole body. I felt sensations like those one feels when accidentally scratching ground glass. Simultaneously, there developed something like a cold draft. Which apparently swept past me from the direction of the distant sound. As I waited breathlessly, I perceived that both sound and wind were increasing. The effect being to give me an odd notion of myself as tied to a pair of rails in the path of a gigantic approaching locomotive. I began to speak to Tillinghast, and as I did so, all the unusual impressions abruptly vanished. I saw only the man, the glowing machine. And the dim apartment. Tillinghast was grinning repulsively at the revolver which I had almost unconsciously drawn. 
but from his expression I was sure he had seen and heard as much as I, if not a great deal more. I whispered what I had experienced, and he bade me to remain as quiet and receptive as possible. Don't move, he cautioned, for in these rays we are able to be seen as well as to see. I told you the servants left, but I didn't tell you how. It was that thick-witted housekeeper. She turned on the lights downstairs after I had warned her not to, and the wires picked up sympathetic vibrations. It must have been frightful. I could hear the screams up here, in spite of all I was seeing and hearing from another direction. And later, it was rather awful to find those empty heaps of clothes around the house. Mrs. Updike's clothes were close to the front hall switch. That's how I know she did it. It got them all. But so long as we don't move, we're fairly safe. Remember, we're dealing with a hideous world in which we are practically helpless. Keep still. The combined shock of the revelation and of the abrupt command gave me a kind of paralysis, and in my terror my mind again opened to the impressions coming from what Tillinghast called Beyond. I was now in a vortex of sound and motion, with confused pictures before my eyes. I saw the blurred outlines of the room, but from some point in space there seemed to be pouring a seething column of unrecognizable shapes, or clouds, penetrating the solid roof at a point ahead and to the right of me. Then I glimpsed the temple-like effect again, but this time the pillars reached up into an aerial ocean of light which sent down one blinding beam along the path of the cloudy column I had seen before. After that, the scene was almost wholly kaleidoscopic, and in the jumble of sights, sounds, and unidentified sense impressions, I felt that I was about to dissolve or in some way lose the solid form. One definite flash I shall always remember. I seemed for an instant to behold a patch of strange night sky filled with shining, revolving spheres, and as it receded, I saw that the glowing suns formed a constellation or galaxy of settled shape, this shape being the distorted face of Crawford Tillinghast. At another time I felt the huge animate things brushing past me, and occasionally walking or drifting through my supposedly solid body, and I thought I saw Tillinghast look at them as though his better trained senses could catch them visually. I recalled what he had said of the pineal gland, and wondered what he saw with his preternatural eye. Suddenly, I myself became possessed of a kind of augmented sight. Over and above the luminous and shadowy chaos arose a picture which, though vague, held the elements of consistency and permanence. It was indeed somewhat familiar, for the unusual part was superimposed upon the usual terrestrial scene much as a cinema view may be thrown upon the painted curtain of a theater. I saw the attic laboratory, the electrical machine, and the unsightly form of Tillinghast opposite me, but of all the space unoccupied by familiar material objects, not one particle was vacant. Indescribable shapes, both alive and otherwise, were mixed in disgusting disarray, and close to every known thing were whole worlds of alien, unknown entities. 
it likewise seemed that all the known things entered into the composition of other unknown things, and vice versa. Foremost among the living objects were great inky, jellyish monstrosities, which flabbily quivered in harmony with the vibrations from the machine. They were present in loathsome profusion, and I saw to my horror that they overlapped, that they were semi-fluid and capable of passing through one another and through what we know as solids. These things were never still, but seemed ever floating about with some malignant purpose. Sometimes they appeared to devour one another, the attacker launching itself at its victim and instantaneously obliterating the latter from sight. Shudderingly, I felt that I knew what had obliterated the unfortunate servants, and could not exclude the things from my mind as I strove to observe other properties of the newly visible world that lies unseen around us. But Tillinghast had been watching me, and was speaking. You see them? You see them? You see the things that float and flop about you and through you every moment of your life? You see the creatures that form what men call the pure air and the blue sky? Have I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Have I not shown you worlds that no other living men have seen? I heard him scream through the horrible chaos and looked at the wild face thrust so offensively close to mine. His eyes were pits of flame, and they glared at me with what I now saw was overwhelming hatred. The machine droned detestably. You think those floundering things wiped out the servants? Fool! They are harmless. But the servants are gone, aren't they? You tried to stop me. You discouraged me when I needed every drop of encouragement I could get. You were afraid of the cosmic truth, you damned coward. But now I've got you. What swept up the servants? What made them scream so loud? Don't know, eh? You'll know soon enough. Look at me. Listen to what I say. Do you suppose there are really any such things as time and magnitude? Do you fancy there are such things as form or matter? I tell you, I have struck depths that your little brain can't picture. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Space belongs to me, you hear? Things are hunting me now, the things that devour and dissolve, but I know how to elude them. It is you they will get, as they got the servants. Stirring, dear sir, I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you so far by telling you to keep still, saved you to see more sights and to listen to me. If you had moved, they would have been at you long ago. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. It was seeing that made the poor devil scream so. My pets are not pretty, for they come out of places where aesthetic standards are very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you. But I want you to see them. I almost saw them, but I knew how to stop. 
You are not curious? I always knew you were no scientist. Trembling, eh? Trembling with anxiety to see the ultimate things I have discovered. Why don't you move, then? Tired? Well, don't worry, my friend, for they are coming. Look! Look, curse you, look! It's just over your left shoulder. What remains to be told is very brief, and may be familiar to you from the newspaper accounts. The police heard a shot in the old Tillinghast house and found us there. Tillinghast dead, and me unconscious. They arrested me because the revolver was in my hand, but released me in three hours, after they found it was apoplexy which had finished Tillinghast, and saw that my shot had been directed at the noxious machine, which now lay hopelessly shattered on the laboratory floor. I did not tell very much of what I had seen, for I feared the coroner would be skeptical. But from the evasive outline I did give, the doctor told me that I had undoubtedly been hypnotized by the vindictive and homicidal madman. I wish I could believe that, doctor. It would help my shaky nerves if I could dismiss what I now have to think of the air and the sky about and above me. I never feel alone or comfortable, and a hideous sense of pursuit sometimes comes chillingly on me when I am weary. What prevents me from believing the doctor is this one simple fact, that the police never found the bodies of those servants whom they say Crawford Tillinghast murdered. We'll return with our second story, Herbert West Reanimator, right after these sponsor messages. And now, our story. Of Herbert West, who was my friend in college and in afterlife, I can only speak of with terror. This terror is not due altogether to the manner of his recent disappearance, but was engendered by the whole nature of his life work and first gained its acute form more than 17 years ago when we were in the third year of our course at the Miskatonic University Medical School in Arkham. While he was with me, the wonder and diabolism of his experiments fascinated me utterly, and I was his closest companion. Now that he is gone and the spell is broken, the actual fear is greater. Memories and possibilities are ever more hideous than realities. The first horrible incident of our acquaintance was the greatest shock I ever experienced, and it is only with reluctance that I repeat it. As I've said, it happened when we were in the medical school, where West had already made himself notorious through his wild theories on the nature of death and the possibility of overcoming it artificially. His views, which were widely ridiculed by the faculty and by his fellow students, hinged on the essentially mechanistic nature of life and concerned means for operating the organic machinery of mankind by calculated chemical action after the failure of natural processes. In his experiments with various animating solutions, he had killed and treated immense numbers of rabbits, guinea pigs, cats, dogs, and monkeys, till he had become the prime nuisance of the college. Several times he had actually obtained signs of life in the animals supposedly dead, and in many cases, violent signs, but he soon saw that the perfection of his process, if indeed possible, would necessarily involve a lifetime of research. 
It likewise became clear that since the same solution never worked alike on different organic species, he would require human subjects for further and more specialized progress. It was here that he first came into conflict with the college authorities and was debarred from future experiments by no less a dignitary than the dean of the medical school himself, the learned and benevolent Dr. Alan Halsey, whose work on behalf of the stricken is recalled by every old resident of Arkham. I had always been exceptionally tolerant of West's pursuits, and we frequently discussed his theories, whose ramifications and corollaries were almost infinite. Holding with heckle that all life is a chemical and physical process, and that the so-called soul is a myth, my friend believed that artificial reanimation of the dead can depend only on the condition of the tissues, and that unless actual decomposition has set in, a corpse fully equipped with organs may, with suitable measures, be set going again in the peculiar fashion known as life." That the psychic or intellectual life might be impaired by the slight deterioration of sensitive brain cells, which even a short period of death would be apt to cause, West fully realized. It had been his hope to find a reagent which would restore vitality before the actual advent of death, and only repeated failures on animals had shown him that the natural and artificial life motions were incompatible. He then sought extreme freshness in his specimens, injecting his solution into the blood immediately after the extinction of life. It was this circumstance which made the professor so carelessly skeptical, for they felt that true death had not occurred in any case. They did not stop to view the matter closely and reasoningly. It was not long after the faculty had interdicted his work that West confided to me his resolution to find fresh human bodies in some manner and continue in secret the experiments that he could no longer perform openly. To hear him discussing ways and means was rather ghastly, for at the college we had never procured anatomical specimens ourselves. West was then a small, slender, spectacled youth with delicate features, yellow hair, pale blue eyes, and a soft voice and it was uncanny to hear him dwelling on the relative merits of Christ Church Cemetery and the Potter's Field. We finally decided on the Potter's Field because practically everybody in Christ Church was embalmed, a thing, of course, ruinous to West's researches. I was, by this time, his active and enthralled assistant and helped him make all his decisions not only concerning the source of bodies but concerning a suitable place for our loathsome work. It was I who thought of the deserted Chapman farmhouse beyond Meadow Hill, where we fitted up on the ground floor an operating room and a laboratory, each with dark curtains to conceal our midnight doings. The place was far from any road and in sight of no other house, yet precautions were nonetheless necessary since rumors of strange lights started by chance nocturnal roamers would soon bring disaster on our enterprise. It was agreed to call the whole thing a, a chemical laboratory if discovery should occur. Gradually, we equipped our sinister haunt of science with materials either purchased in Boston or quietly borrowed from the college, materials carefully made unrecognizable save to expert eyes, and provided spades and picks for the many burials that we should have to make in the cellar. At the college, we used an incinerator, but the apparatus was too costly for our unauthorized laboratory. Bodies were always a nuisance, 
even the small guinea pig bodies from the slight, clandestine experiments in West's room at the boarding house. We followed the local death notices like ghouls, for our specimens demanded particular qualities. What we wanted were corpses interred soon after death and without artificial preservation, preferably free from malforming disease and certainly with all organs present. Accident victims were our best hope. Not for many weeks did we hear of anything suitable, though we talked with morgue and hospital authorities, ostensibly in the college's interest, as often as we could without exciting suspicion. We found that the college had first choice in every case so that it might be necessary to remain in Arkham during the summer when only the limited summer school classes were held. In the end, though, luck favored us. For one day we heard of an almost ideal case in the potter's field, a brawny young workman drowned only the morning before in Sumner's Pond and buried at the town's expense without delay and embalming. That afternoon... We found the new grave and determined to begin work soon after midnight. It was a repulsive task that we undertook in the black small hours, even though we lacked at that time the special horror of graveyards which later experiments brought to us. We carried spades and oil-dark lanterns, for although electric torches were then manufactured, they were not as satisfactory as the tungsten contrivances of today. The process of unearthing was slow and sordid. It might have been grotesquely poetical if we had been artists instead of scientists, and we were glad when our spade struck wood. When the pine box was fully uncovered, West scrambled down and removed the lid, dragging out and propping up the contents. I reached down and hauled the contents out of the grave, and then both toiled hard to restore the spot to its former appearance. The affair made us rather nervous, especially the stiff form and vacant face of our first trophy. But we managed to remove all traces of our visit. When we had patted down the last shovelful of earth, we put the specimen in a canvas sack and set out for the old Chapman place beyond Meadow Hill. On an improvised dissecting table in the old farmhouse, by the light of a powerful acetylene lamp, the specimen was not very spectral-looking. It had been a sturdy and apparently unimaginative youth of wholesome plebeian type, large-framed, gray-eyed, and brown-haired, a sound animal without psychological subtleties and probably having vital processes of the simplest and healthiest sort. Now, with the eyes closed, it looked more asleep than dead, though the expert tests of my friend soon left no doubt on that score. He had at last what West had always longed for, a real dead man of the ideal kind, ready for the solution as prepared according to the most careful calculations and theories for human use. The tension on our part became very great. We knew that there was scarcely a chance of anything like complete success and could not avoid hideous fears at possible grotesque results of partial animation. Especially were we appreciative concerning the mind and impulses of the creature, since in the space following death, some of the more delicate cerebral cells might well have suffered deterioration. I, myself, still held some curious notions about the traditional soul of man and felt in awe at the secrets that might be told by one returning from the dead. I wondered what sights this placid youth might have seen in inaccessible spheres and what he could relate if fully restored to life. But my wonder was not overwhelming since for the most part I shared the materialism of my friend. 
He was calmer than I, as he forced a large quantity of the fluid into the vein of the body's arm, immediately binding the incision securely. The waiting was gruesome, but West never faltered. Every now and then he applied his stethoscope to the specimen and bore the negative results philosophically. After about three quarters of an hour without the least sign of life, he disappointingly pronounced the solution inadequate, but determined to make the most of his opportunity and try one change in the formula before disposing of his ghastly prize. We had that afternoon dug a grave in the cellar and would have to fill it by dawn, for although we had fixed a lock on the house, we wished to shun even the remotest risk of ghoulish discovery. Besides, the body would not be even approximately fresh the next night. So, taking the solitary acetylene lamp into the adjacent laboratory, we left our silent guest on the slab in the dark and bent every energy to the mixing of a new solution, the weighing and measuring supervised by West with an almost fanatical care. The awful event was very sudden and wholly unexpected. I was pouring something from one test tube to another, and West was busy over the alcohol blast lamp, which had to answer for a Bunsen burner in this gasless edifice, when from the pitch-black room we had left, there burst the most appalling and demonic succession of cries that either of us had ever heard. Not more utterable could have been the chaos of hellish sound if the pit itself had opened to release the agony of the damned. For in one inconceivable cacophony was entered all the supernal terror and unnatural despair of animate nature. Human, it could not have been. It is not in man to make such sounds. And without a thought of our late employment or its possible discovery, both West and I leaped to the nearest window like stricken animals, overturning tubes, lamp, and retorts, and vaulting madly into the starred abyss of the rural night. I think we screamed ourselves as we stumbled frantically toward the town, though as we reached the outskirts we put on a semblance of restraint, just enough to seem like belated revelers staggering home from a debauch. We did not separate, but managed to get to West's room, where we whispered with the gas up until dawn. By then we had calmed ourselves a little with rational theories and plans for investigation so that we could sleep through the day, classes being disregarded. But that evening two items in the paper, wholly unrelated, made it again impossible for us to sleep. The old deserted Chapman place had inexplicably burned to an amorphous heap of ashes. That we could understand because of the upset lamp. Also, an attempt had been made to disturb a new grave in the potter's field, as if by futile and spadeless clawing at the earth. That we could not understand, for we had patted down the earth very carefully. And for seventeen years after that west, would look frequently over his shoulder and complain of fancied footsteps behind him. I shall never forget that hideous summer sixteen years ago when, like a noxious affright from the halls of Elbus, typhoid stalked through Arkham. It is by that satanic scourge that most recall the year 
were truly terror brooded with bat wings over the piles of coffins in the tombs of the Christchurch Cemetery. Yet, for me, there is a greater horror in that time, a horror known to me alone now that Herbert West has disappeared. After our experience with the corpse from the potter's field, West dropped his researches for some time, but as the zeal of the born scientist slowly returned, he again became importunate with the college faculty, pleading for the use of the dissecting room and of fresh specimens for the work he regarded as so overwhelmingly important. His pleas, however, were wholly in vain, for the decision of Dr. Halsey was inflexible, and the other professors all endorsed the verdict of their leader. In the radical theory of reanimation, they saw nothing but the immature vagaries of a youthful enthusiast whose slight form, yellow hair, spectacled blue eyes, and soft voice gave no hint of the supernormal, almost diabolical power of the cold brain within. I can see him now as I saw him then, and I shiver. He grew sterner of face, but never elderly. And now, Sefton Asylum has had the mishap and West has vanished. West clashed disagreeably with Dr. Halsey near the end of our last undergraduate term in a wordy dispute that did less credit to him than to the kindly dean in point of courtesy. He felt that he was needlessly and irrationally retarded in a supremely great work, a work which he could, of course, conduct to suit himself in later years, but which he wished to begin while still possessed of the exceptional facilities of the university that the tradition-bound elders should ignore his singular results on animals was inexpressibly disgusting and almost incomprehensible to a youth of West's logical temperament. Only greater maturity could help him understand the chronic mental limitations of the professor-slash-doctor type, the product of generations of pathetic puritanism, kindly, conscientious, and sometimes gentle and amiable, yet always narrow, intolerant, custom-ridden, and lacking in perspective. West had scant patience with good Dr. Halsey and his erudite colleagues, and nursed an increasing resentment coupled with a desire to prove his theories to these obtuse worthies in some striking and dramatic fashion. Like most youths, he indulged in elaborate daydreams of revenge, triumph, and final magnanimous forgiveness. And then had come the scourge, grinning and lethal from the nightmare caverns of Tartarus. West and I had graduated about the time of its beginning, but had remained for additional work at the summer school, so we were in Arkham when it broke with full demonic fury upon the town. Though not as yet licensed physicians, we now had our degrees and were pressed frantically into public service as the numbers of the stricken grew. The situation was almost past management, and deaths ensued too frequently for the local undertakers fully to handle. Burials without embalming were made in rapid succession, and even the Christchurch Cemetery receiving tomb was crammed with coffins of the unembalmed dead. This circumstance was not without effect on West, who often thought of the irony of the situation. So many fresh specimens, yet none for his persecuted researches. We were frightfully overworked, and the terrible mental and nervous strain made my friend brood morbidly. But West's gentle enemies were no less harassed with prostrating duties. College had all but closed, but every doctor of the medical faculty was helping to fight the typhoid plague. 
Dr. Halsey in particular had distinguished himself in sacrificing service, applying his extreme skill with wholehearted energy to cases which many others shunned because of danger or apparent hopelessness. Before a month was over, the fearless Dean had become a popular hero, though he seemed unconscious of his fame as he struggled to keep from collapsing with physical fatigue and nervous exhaustion. West could not withhold admiration for the fortitude of his foe, but because of this he was even more determined to prove to him the truth of his amazing doctrines, taking advantage of the disorganization of both college work and municipal health regulations. He managed to get a recently deceased body smuggled into the university dissecting room one night, and in my presence injected a new modification of his solution. The thing actually opened its eyes, but only stared at the ceiling with a look of soul-petrifying horror before collapsing into an inertness from which nothing could rouse it. West said it was not fresh enough. The hot summer air does not favor corpses. That time we were almost caught before we incinerated the thing, and West doubted the advisability of repeating his daring misuse of the college laboratory. The peak of the epidemic was reached in August. West and I were almost dead, and Dr. Halsey did die on the 14th. The students all attended the hasty funeral on the 15th and brought an impressive wreath though the latter was quite overshadowed by the tributes sent by wealthy Arkham citizens and by the municipality itself. It was almost a public affair, for the dean had surely been a public benefactor. After the entombment, we were all somewhat depressed and spent the afternoon at the bar of the commercial house, where West, though shaken by the death of his chief opponent, chilled the rest of us with references to his notorious theories. Most of the students went home or to various duties as the evening advanced, but West persuaded me to aid him in making a night of it. West's landlady saw us arrive at his room about two in the morning with a third man between us and told her husband that we'd evidently dined and wined rather well. Apparently this acidulous matron was right, for... About 3 p.m., the whole house was aroused by cries coming from West's room, where, when they broke down the door, they found the two of us unconscious on the blood-stained carpet, beaten, scratched, and mauled, and with the broken remnants of West bottles and instruments around us. Only an open window told us what had become of our assailant, and many wondered how he himself had fared after the terrific leap from the second story to the lawn which he must have made. There were some strange garments in the room, but West, upon regaining consciousness, said that they did not belong to the stranger, but were specimens collected for bacteriological analysis in the course of investigations in the transmission of germ diseases. He ordered them burned as soon as possible in the capacious fireplace. To the police, we had both declared ignorance of our late companion's identity. He was, West nervously said, a congenial stranger whom we had met at some downtown bar of uncertain location. We all had been rather jovial, and West and I did not wish to have our pugnacious companion hunted down. That same night saw the beginning of the second Arkham Horror, the horror that to me eclipsed the plague itself. Christ Church Cemetery was the scene of a terrible killing. A watchman 
having been clawed to death in a matter not only too hideous for description, but raising a doubt as to the human agency of the deed. The victim had been alive considerably after midnight. The dawn revealed the unutterable thing. The manager of a circus at the neighboring town of Bolton was questioned, but he swore that no beast had at any time escaped from its cage. Those who found the body noted a trail of blood leading to the receiving tomb where a small pool of red lay on the concrete just outside the gate. A fainter trail led away through the woods, but it soon gave out. The next night, devils danced on the roofs of Arkham, and unnatural madness howled in the wind. Through the fevered town had crept a curse which some said was greater than the plague itself. Eight houses were entered by a nameless thing which strewed red death in its wake, and all seventeen maimed, shapeless remnants of bodies were left behind by the voiceless, sadistic monster that crept abroad. A few persons had seen it in the dark and said it was white and like a malformed ape or anthropomorphic fiend. It had not left behind quite all that it had attacked, for sometimes it had been hungry. The number of its killed was fourteen. Three of the bodies had been in plague-stricken homes and had not been alive. On the third night, frantic bands of searchers led by the police captured it in a house on Crane Street near the Miskatonic campus. They'd organized the quest with care, keeping in touch by means of volunteer telephone stations, and when someone in the college district had reported hearing a scratching at a shuttered window, the net was quickly spread. On account of the general alarm and precautions, there were only two more victims, and the capture was effected without major casualties. The thing was finally stopped by a bullet, though not a fatal one, and was rushed to the local hospital amidst universal excitement and loathing. For it had been a man. This much was clear despite the nauseous eyes, the voiceless simianism, and the demonic savagery. They dressed its wounds and carted it to the asylum at Sefton, where it beat its head against the walls of a padded cell for sixteen years, until the recent mishap, when it escaped under circumstances that few like to mention. What had most disgusted the searchers of Arkham was the thing they noticed when the monster's face was cleaned, the mocking, unbelievable resemblance to a learned and self-sacrificing martyr who had been entombed but three days before the late Dr. Alan Halsey, public benefactor and dean of the medical school of Miskatonic University. To the vanished Herbert West, and to me the disgust and horror were supreme. I shudder tonight as I think of it, shudder even more than I did that morning when West muttered through his bandages, Damn it. It wasn't fresh enough. It is uncommon to fire all six shots of a revolver with great suddenness when one would probably be sufficient. But many things in the life of Herbert West were uncommon. It is, for instance, 
Not often that a young physician leaving college is obliged to conceal the principles which guide his selection of a home and office. Yet that was the case with Herbert West. When he and I obtained our degrees at the medical school of Miskatonic University and sought to relieve our poverty by setting up as general practitioners, we took great care not to say that we chose our house because it was fairly well isolated and as near as possible to the potter's field. Reticence such as this is seldom without cause, nor indeed was ours, for our requirements were those resulting from a life work distinctly unpopular. Outwardly, we were doctors only, but beneath the surface were aims of far greater and more terrible moments. For the essence of Herbert West's existence was a quest amid black and forbidden realms of the unknown in which he hoped to uncover the secret of life and restore to perpetual animation the graveyard's cold clay. Such a quest demands strange materials among them, fresh human bodies, and in order to keep supplied with these indispensable things, one must live quietly and not far from a place of informal internment. It was not easy to find a good opening for two doctors and company, but finally the influence of the university secured us a practice in Bolton, a factory town near Arkham. The Bolton Worsted Mills are the largest in the Miskatonic Valley, and their polyglot employees are never popular as patients with the local physicians. We chose our house with the greatest care, seizing at last a rather run-down cottage near the end of Pond Street, five numbers from the closest neighbor, and separated from the local potter's field by only a stretch of meadowland, bisected by a narrow neck of rather dense forest which lies to the north. The distance was greater than we wished, but we could get no nearer house without going on the other side of the field, wholly out of the factory district. We were not much displeased, however, since there were no people between us and our sinister source of supplies. The walk was a trifle long, but we could haul our silent specimens undisturbed. Our practice was surprisingly large from the very first, large enough to please most young doctors and large enough to prove a bore and a burden to students whose real interest lay elsewhere. The mill hands were of somewhat turbulent inclinations, and besides their many natural needs, their frequent clashes and stabbing affrays gave us plenty to do. But what actually absorbed our minds was the secret laboratory that we had fitted up in the cellar. The laboratory with the long table under the electric lights were the small hours of the morning we often injected West's various solutions into the veins of the things that we dragged from the potter's field. The bodies had to be exceedingly fresh, or the slight decomposition of the brain tissue would render perfect reanimation impossible. Indeed, the greatest problem was to get them fresh enough. West had had terrible experiences during his secret college researches with corpses of doubtful vintage. West, though calm, often confessed to a shuddering sensation of stealthy pursuit. He had felt that he was followed. A psychological delusion of shaken nerves, enhanced by the undeniably disturbing fact that at least one of the reanimated specimens was still alive, a frightful carnivorous thing in a padded cell at Sefton. Then there was another, our first, whose exact fate we had never learned. We had fair luck with specimens in Bolton, much better than in Arkham. We had not been settled a week before we got an accident victim on the very night of burial and made it open its eyes with an amazingly rational expression. 
before the solution failed. It had lost an arm. If it had been a perfect body, we might have succeeded better. Between then and the next January, we secured three more, one total failure, one case of marked muscular motion, and one rather shivery thing. It rose of itself and uttered a sound. Then came a period when luck was poor. Interments fell off, and those that did occur were of specimens either too diseased or too maimed for our use. We kept track of all the deaths and their circumstances with systematic care. One March night, however, we unexpectedly obtained a specimen which did not come from the potter's field. In Bolton, the prevailing spirit of Puritanism had outlawed the sport of boxing with the usual result. Surreptitious and ill-conducted bouts among the mill workers were common, and occasionally professional talent of low grade was imported. This late winter night there had been such a match, evidently with disastrous results, since two timorous Poles had come to us with incoherently whispered entreaties to attend to a very secret and desperate case. We followed them to an abandoned barn, where the remnants of a crowd of frightened foreigners were watching a silent black form on the floor. The match had been between Kid O'Brien, a lubberly and now quaking youth, and Buck Robinson, the Harlem smoke. The black man had been knocked out, and a moment's examination showed us that he would permanently remain so. Fear was upon the whole pitiful crowd, for they did not know what the law would exact of them if the affair were not hushed up. And they were very grateful when West, in spite of my involuntary shudders, offered to get rid of the thing quietly for a purpose. I knew too well. There was bright moonlight over the snowless landscape, but we dressed the thing and carried it home between us through the deserted streets and meadows, as we had carried a similar thing one horrible night in Arkham. We approached the house from the field in the rear, took the specimen in the back door and down the cellar stairs, and prepared it for the usual experiment. Our fear of the police was absurdly great, though we had timed our trip to avoid the solitary patrolman of that section. The result was wearily anticlimactic. Ghastly as our prize appeared, it was wholly unresponsive to every solution we injected in its black arm. So as the hour grew dangerously near to dawn, we did as we had done with the others, dragged the thing across the meadow to the neck of the woods near the potter's field, and buried it there in the best sort of grave that the frozen ground would furnish. The grave was not very deep, but fully as good as that of the previous specimen, the thing which had risen of itself and uttered a sound. In the light of our dark lanterns, we carefully covered it with leaves and dead vines, fairly certain that the police would never find it in a forest so dim and dense. The next day, I was increasingly apprehensive about the police, for a patient brought rumors of a suspected fight and death. West had still another source of worry, for he had been called in the afternoon to a case which ended very threateningly. An Italian woman had become hysterical over her missing child, a lad of five who had strayed off early in the morning and failed to appear for dinner, and she developed symptoms highly alarming in view of her always weak heart. It was a very foolish hysteria, for the boy had often run away before but the woman seemed as much harassed by omens as by facts. 
about seven o'clock in the evening, she died. And her frantic husband had made a frightful scene in his efforts to kill West, whom he wildly blamed for not saving her life. Friends had held him when he drew a stiletto. But West had departed amidst his inhuman shrieks, curses, and oaths of vengeance. In his latest affliction, the fellow seemed to have forgotten his child, who was still missing as the night advanced. There was some talk of searching the woods, but most of the family's friends were busy with the dead woman and the screaming man. Altogether, the nervous strain upon West must have been tremendous. Thoughts of the police and the mad Italian both weighed heavily. We retired about eleven, but I didn't sleep well. Bolton had a surprisingly good police force for so small a town, and I couldn't help fearing the mess which would ensue if the affair of the night before were ever tracked down. It might mean the end of all of our local work, and perhaps prison for both West and me. I did not like these rumors of a fight which were floating about. After the clock had struck three, the moon shone in my eyes, but I turned over without rising to pull down the shade. Then came the steady rattling at the back door. I lay still and somewhat dazed, but before long heard West's rap on my door. He was clad in a dressing gown and slippers, and had in his hand a revolver and an electric flashlight. From the revolver, I knew that he was thinking more of the crazed Italian than of the police. We'd better both go, he whispered. It wouldn't do not to answer it, anyway. And it may be a patient. It would be like one of those fools to try the back door. So we both went down the stairs on tiptoe with a fear partly justified and partly that which comes only from the soul of the weird small hours. The rattling continued growing somewhat louder. When we reached the door, I cautiously unbolted it and threw it open. And as the moon streamed revealingly down on the form silhouetted there, West did a peculiar thing. Despite the obvious danger of attracting notice and bringing down on our heads the dreaded police investigation, a thing which after all was mercifully averted by the relative isolation of our cottage, my friend suddenly, excitedly and unnecessarily emptied all six chambers of his revolver into the nocturnal visitor. For that visitor was neither Italian nor policeman. Looming hideously against the spectral moon was a gigantic, misshaped thing not to be imagined save in nightmares. A glassy-eyed, ink-black apparition nearly on all fours, covered with bits of mold, leaves, and vines, foul with caked blood, and having between its glistening teeth a snow-white, terrible, cylindrical object terminating in a tiny hand. The scream of a dead man gave to me that acute and added horror of Dr. West which harassed the latter years of our companionship. It's natural that such a thing as a dead man's scream should give horror, for it's obviously not a pleasing or ordinary occurrence. But I was used to similar experiences, hence suffered on this occasion only because of a particular circumstance. And, as I have implied, it was not of the dead man himself that I became afraid.
West had never fully succeeded because he had never been able to secure a corpse sufficiently fresh. What he wanted were bodies from which vitality had only just departed, bodies with every cell intact and capable of receiving again the impulse toward that mode of motion called life. There was hope that this second and artificial life might be made perpetual by repetitions of the injection, but we had learned that an ordinary natural life would not be responsive to the action. To establish the artificial motion, natural life must be extinct, and the specimens must be very fresh, but genuinely dead. It was in July, 1910, that the bad luck regarding specimens began to turn. I had been on a long visit to my parents in Illinois, and upon my return found West in a state of singular elation. He had, he told me excitedly, in all likelihood solved the problem of freshness through an approach from an entirely new angle, that of artificial preservation. I had known that he was working on a new and highly unusual embalming compound and was not surprised that it had turned out well. But until he explained the details, I was rather puzzled as to how such a compound could help in our work since the objectionable staleness of the specimens was largely due to delay occurring before we secured them. This I now saw West had clearly recognized, creating his embalming compound for future rather than immediate use, and trusting to fate to supply again some very recent and unburied corpse, as it had years before when we obtained the boxer killed in the Bolton prize fight. At last, fate had been kind so that on this occasion there lay in the secret cellar laboratory a corpse whose decay could not by any possibility have begun. What would happen on reanimation, and whether we could hope for a revival of mind and reason, West did not venture to predict. The experiment would be a landmark in our studies, and he had saved the new body for my return, so that both might share the spectacle in a custom fashion. West told me how he had obtained the specimen. It had been a vigorous man, a well-dressed stranger, just off the train and on his way to transact some business with the Bolton Worsted Mills. The walk through the town had been long, and by the time the traveler paused at our cottage to ask the way to the factories, his heart had become greatly overtaxed. He'd refused a stimulant and suddenly dropped dead only a moment later. The body as might be expected, seemed to West a heaven-sent gift. In his brief conversation with the stranger, it had become clear that he was unknown in Bolton, and a search of his pockets subsequently revealed him to be one Robert Leavitt of St. Louis, apparently without a family to make instant inquiries about his disappearance. If this man could not be restored to life, no one would know of our experiment. If, on the other hand, he could be restored our fame would be brilliantly and perpetually established. So, without delay, West had injected into the body's wrist the compound which would hold it fresh for use after my arrival. The matter of the presumably weak heart, which, to my mind, imperiled the success of our experiment, did not appear to trouble West extensively. He hoped at last to obtain what he had never obtained before, a rekindled spark of reason and perhaps a normal living creature. So on the night of July 18, 1910, Herbert West and I stood in the cellar laboratory and gazed at a white, silent figure beneath the dazzling arc light. 
The embalming compound had worked uncannily well, for as I stared fascinatingly at the sturdy frame which had lain two weeks without stiffening, I was moved to seek West's assurance that the thing was really dead. This assurance he gave readily enough, reminding me that the reanimating solution was never used without careful tests as to life, since it could have no effect if any of the original vitality were present. As West proceeded to take preliminary steps, I was impressed by the vast intricacy of the experiment, an intricacy so vast that he could trust no hand less delicate than his own. Forbidding me to touch the body, he first injected a drug in the wrist just beside the place that his needle had punctured when injecting the embalming compound. This, he said, was to neutralize the compound and release the system to normal relaxation so that the reanimating solution might freely work when injected. Slightly later, when a change and a gentle tremor seemed to affect the dead limbs, West stuffed a pillow-like object violently over the twitching face, not withdrawing it until the corpse appeared quiet and ready for our attempt at reanimation. The pale enthusiast now applied some last perfunctory tests for absolute lifelessness, withdrew satisfied, and finally injected into the left arm an accurately measured amount of the vital elixir, prepared during the afternoon with a greater care than we had used since college days when our feet were new and groping. I cannot express the wild, breathless suspense with which we waited for the results in this first really fresh specimen. The first we could reasonably expect to open its lips in rational speech, perhaps to tell of what it had seen beyond the abyss. West was a materialist, believing in no soul and attributing all the workings of consciousness to bodily phenomena. Consequently, he looked for no revelations of hideous secrets from gulfs and caverns beyond death's barrier. I did not wholly disagree with him theoretically, yet held vague instinctive remnants of the primitive faith of my forefathers, so that I could not help but eyeing the corpse with a certain amount of awe and terrible expectation. Besides, I could not extract from my memory that hideous inhuman shriek we heard the night that we tried our first experiment in the deserted farmhouse at Arkham. Very little time had elapsed before I saw that the attempt was not to be a total failure. A touch of color came to the cheeks hitherto chalk-white and spread out over the curiously ample stubble of sandy beard. West, who had his hand on the pulse of the left wrist, suddenly nodded significantly, and almost simultaneously a mist appeared on the mirror inclined above the body's mouth. There followed a few spasmodic muscle motions, and then an audible breathing and visible motion of the chest. I looked at the closed eyelids and thought I detected a quivering. Then the lids opened, showing eyes that were gray, calm, and alive, but still unintelligent and not even curious. In a moment of fantastic whim, I whispered questions to the reddening ears, questions of other worlds of which the memory might still be present, Subsequent terror drove them from my mind, but I think the last one which I repeated was, Where have you been? Where have you been? Where have you been? I don't yet know whether I was answered or not, for no sound came from the well-shaped mouth, but I do know that at that moment I finally thought that the thin lips moved silently, forming syllables, which I would have vocalized as, 
only now, if that phrase had possessed any sense or relevancy. At that moment, as I say, I was elated with the conviction that the one great goal had been attained, and for the first time a reanimated corpse had uttered distinct words impelled by actual reason. In the next moment, there was no doubt about the triumph, no doubt that the solution had truly accomplished, at least temporarily, its full mission of restoring rational and articulate life to the dead. But in that triumph, there came to me the greatest of all horrors. Not horror of the thing that spoke, but of the deed that I had witnessed and of the man with whom my professional fortunes were joined. For that very fresh body at last writhing into full and terrifying consciousness with eyes dilated at the memory of its last scene on earth, threw out its frantic hands in a life-and-death struggle with the air and suddenly collapsing into a second and final dissolution from which there would be no return, screamed out the cry that will ring eternally in my aching brain. Help! Keep off, you cursed little toe-headed fiend! Keep that damned needle away from me! Many men have related hideous things which happened on the battlefields of the Great War. Some of these things have made me faint. Others have convulsed me with devastating nausea while still others have made me tremble and look behind me in the dark. Yet despite the worst of them, I believe I can myself relate the most hideous thing of all, the shocking, the unnatural, the unbelievable horror from the shadows. In 1915, I was a physician with the rank of first lieutenant in a Canadian regiment in Flanders, one of the many Americans to precede the government itself into the gigantic struggle. I had not entered the army of my own initiative, but rather as a natural result of the enlistment of the man whose indispensable assistant I was, the celebrated Boston surgical specialist, Dr. Herbert West. Dr. West had been avid for a chance to serve as a surgeon in a great war, and when the chance had come, he carried me with him almost against my will. There were reasons why I found the practice of medicine and the companionship of West more and more irritating. But when he had gone to Ottawa and, through a colleague's influence, secured a medical commission as major, I could not resist the imperious persuasion of one determined that I should accompany him in my usual capacity. When I say that Dr. West was avid to serve in battle, I don't mean to imply that he was either naturally warlike or anxious for the safety of civilization. Always an ice-cold intellectual machine I think he secretly sneered at my occasional martial enthusiasms and censures of supine neutrality. There was, however, something he wanted in embattled planters, and in order to secure it, he had to assume a military exterior. What he wanted was not a thing which many persons want. It was, in fact, nothing more or less than an abundant supply of freshly killed men in every stage of dismemberment. Herbert West needed fresh bodies because his life work was the reanimation of the dead. This work was not known to the fashionable clientele who had so swiftly built up his fame after his arrival in Boston, 
but was only too well known to me, who had been his closest friend and sole assistant since the old days in Miskatonic University Medical School at Arkham. In college, and during our early practice together in the factory town of Bolton, my attitude toward him had been one largely of fascinated admiration. But as his boldness and methods grew, I began to develop a gnawing fear. I did not like the way he looked at healthy living bodies. And then there came a nightmarish session in the cellar laboratory when I learned that a certain specimen had been a living body when he secured it. That was the first time that he had ever been able to revive the quality of rational thought in a corpse. And his success, obtained at such a loathsome cost, had completely hardened him. Of his methods in the intervening five years, I dare not speak. I was held to him by the sheer force of fear and witnessed sights that no human tongue should repeat. Gradually, I came to find Herbert West himself more horrible than anything he did. That was when it dawned on me that his once normal scientific zeal for prolonging life had subtly degenerated into a mere morbid and ghoulish curiosity and secret sense of charnel picturesqueness. His interest became a hellish and perverse addiction to the repellently and fiendishly abnormal. He gloated calmly over artificial monstrosities which would make most healthy men drop dead from fright and disgust. He became, behind his pallid intellectuality, a fastidious Baudelaire of physical experiment. Dangers he met unflinchingly, crimes he committed unmoved. I think the climax came when he had proved his point that rational life can be restored and then sought new worlds to conquer by experimenting on the reanimation of detached parts of bodies. He had wild and original ideas on the independent vital properties of organic cells and nerve tissues separated from natural physiological systems, and he achieved some hideous preliminary results in the form of never-dying, artificially nourished tissue obtained from the nearly hatched eggs of an indescribable tropical reptile. Two biological points he was exceedingly anxious to settle. First, whether any amount of consciousness and rational action be possible without the brain, proceeding from the spinal cord and various nerve centers. And second, whether any kind of ethereal, intangible relation distinct from the material cells may exist to link the surgically separated parts of what was previously a single living organism. All this research work required a prodigious supply of freshly slaughtered bodies, and that was why Herbert West had entered the Great War. The phantasmal, unmentionable thing occurred one night late in March of 1915 in a field hospital behind the lines at St. Eloy. I wonder even now if it could have been other than a demonic dream of delirium. West had a private laboratory in an east room of a barn-like temporary edifice assigned to him on his pleas that he was devising new and radical methods for the treatment of hitherto hopeless cases of maiming. There, he worked like a butcher in the midst of his gory wares. I could never get used to the levity with which he handled and classified certain things. At times, he actually did perform marvels of surgery for the soldiers, but his chief delights were of less public and philanthropic kind. 
requiring many explanations of sounds which seemed peculiar even amidst the babble of the damned. Among these sounds were frequent revolver shots, surely not uncommon on a battlefield, but distinctly uncommon in a hospital. Dr. West's reanimated specimens were not meant for long existence or a large audience. Besides human tissues, West employed much of the reptile embryo tissue which he had cultivated with such singular results. It was better than human material for maintaining life in organless fragments, and that was now my friend's chief activity. In a dark corner of the laboratory over a queer incubating burner, he kept a large covered vat full of this reptilian cell matter, which multiplied and grew puffily and hideously. On the night of which I speak, we had a splendid new specimen, a man at once physically powerful and of such high mentality that a sensitive nervous system was assured. It was rather ironic, for he was the officer who had helped West to his commission and who was soon to have been our associate. Moreover, he had in the past secretly studied the theory of reanimation to some extent under West. Major Sir Eric Morland Clapham Lee was the greatest surgeon in our division and had been hastily assigned to the St. Eloy sector when news of the heavy fighting reached headquarters. He had come in an aeroplane piloted by the intrepid Lieutenant Ronald Hill, only to be shot down when directly over his destination. The fall had been spectacular and awful. Hill was unrecognizable afterward, but the wreck yielded up the great surgeon in a nearly decapitated but otherwise intact condition. West had greedily seized the lifeless thing which had once been his friend and fellow scholar, and I shuddered when he finished severing the head and placed it in his hellish vat of pulpy reptile tissue to preserve it for future experiments, and then proceeded to treat the decapitated body on the operating table. He injected new blood, joined certain veins, arteries, and nerves at the headless neck, and closed the ghastly aperture with engrafted skin from an unidentified specimen which had borne an officer's uniform. I knew what he wanted, to see if this highly organized body could exhibit, without its head, any of the signs of mental life which had distinguished Sir Eric Morland Clapham Lee. Once a student of reanimation, this silent trunk was now gruesomely called upon to exemplify it. I can still see Herbert West under the sinister electronic light as he injected his reanimating solution into the arm of the headless body. The scene I cannot describe. I should faint if I tried. For there is madness in a room full of classified charnel things with blood and lesser human debris almost ankle-deep on the slimy floor and with hideous reptilian abnormalities sprouting, bubbling, and baking over a winking bluish-green specter of dim flame in a far corner of black shadows. The specimen, as West repeatedly observed, had a splendid nervous system. Much was expected of it, and as a few twitching motions began to appear, I could see the feverish interest in West's face. He was ready, I think, to see proof of his increasingly strong opinion that consciousness, reason, and personality can exist independently of the brain. 
that man has no central connective spirit, but is merely a machine of nervous matter, each section more or less complete in itself. In one triumphant demonstration, West was about to relegate the mystery of life to the category of myth. The body now twitched more vigorously, and beneath our avid eyes commenced to heave in a frightful way. The arms stirred disquietingly, the legs drew up, and various muscles contracted in a repulsive kind of writhing. Then the headless thing threw out its arms in a gesture which was unmistakably one of desperation, an intelligent desperation apparently sufficient to prove every theory of Herbert West's. Certainly the nerves were recalling the man's last act in life, the struggle to get free from the falling airplane. What followed, I shall never positively know. It may have been wholly an hallucination from the shock caused at that instant by a sudden and complete destruction of the building in a cataclysm of German shellfire. Who can gainsay it, since West and I were the only proved survivors? West liked to think that before his recent disappearance, but there were times when he could not, for it was queer that it, we both had the same hallucination. The hideous occurrence itself was very simple, notable only for what it implied. The body on the table had risen with a blind and terrible groping, and we had heard a sound. I shall not call that sound a voice, for it was too awful. And yet its timber was not the most awful thing about it. Neither was its message. It merely screamed, Jump, Ronald, for God's sakes, jump! The awful thing about it was the source of the sound, for it had come from the large covered vat in that ghoulish corner of crawling black shadows. When Dr. Herbert West disappeared a year ago, the Boston police questioned me closely. They suspected that I was holding something back, and perhaps suspected even graver things, but I could not tell them the truth, because they would not have believed it. They knew, indeed, that West had been connected with activities beyond the credence of ordinary men, for his hideous experiments in the reanimation of dead bodies had long been too extensive to admit perfect secrecy. But the final soul-searching catastrophe held elements of demonic fantasy which make even me doubt the reality of what I saw. The need for fresh corpses had been West's moral undoing. They were hard to get. And one final day he had secured his specimen while it was still alive and vigorous. A struggle, a needle, and a powerful alkaloid had transformed it to a very fresh corpse. And the experiment had succeeded for a brief and memorable moment. But West emerged with a soul calloused and seared, and a hardened eye which sometimes glanced with a kind of hideous and calculating appraisal at men of especially sensitive brain and especially vigorous physique. Toward the last, I became acutely afraid of West, for he began to look at me that way. People didn't seem to notice his glances but they noticed my fear, and after his disappearance, used that as a basis for some absurd suspicions. West, in reality, was more afraid than I, 
for his abominable pursuits entailed a life of furtiveness and dread of every shadow. Partly it was the police, he feared, but sometimes his nervousness was deeper and more nebulous, touching on certain indescribable things into which he had injected a morbid life and from which he had not seen that life depart. He usually finished his experiments with a revolver, but a few times he'd not been quick enough. In saying that West's fear of his specimens was nebulous, I have in mind particularly its complex nature. Part of it came merely from knowing of the existence of such nameless monsters, while another part arose from apprehension of the bodily harm that they might under certain circumstances do him. Their disappearance added horror to the situation. Of them all, West knew of the whereabouts of only one, the pitiful asylum thing. Then there was a more subtle fear, resulting from that curious experiment in the Canadian Army in 1915, when West, in the midst of a severe battle, had reanimated a fellow physician who knew about his experiments and could have duplicated them. The head had been removed, so that the possibilities of quasi-intelligent life in the trunk might be investigated. Just as the building was wiped out by a German shell, there had been a success. The shell had been merciful, in a way. But West could never feel as certain as he wished that we too were the only survivors. He used to make shuddering conjectures about the possible actions of a headless physician with the power of reanimating the dead. West's last quarters were in a venerable house of much elegance overlooking one of the oldest burying grounds in Boston. He'd chosen the place for purely symbolic and fantastically aesthetic reasons, since most of the interments were of the colonial period and therefore of little use to a scientist seeking very fresh bodies. The laboratory was in a sub-cellar secretly constructed by imported workmen and contained a huge incinerator for the quiet and complete disposal of such bodies, or fragments and synthetic mockeries of bodies, as might result from the morbid experiments and unhallowed amusements of the owner. During the excavation of this cellar, the workmen had struck some exceedingly ancient masonry, undoubtedly connected with the old burying ground, yet far too deep to correspond with any known sepulchre therein. After a number of calculations, West decided that it represented some secret chamber beneath the tomb of the Averills, where the last interment had been made in 1768. I was with him when he studied the nitrous, dripping walls laid bare by the spade and mattocks of the men, and was prepared for the gruesome thrill which would attend the uncovering of centuried grave secrets but for the first time West's new timidity conquered his natural curiosity, and he betrayed his degenerating fiber by ordering the masonry left intact and plastered over. Thus it remained till that final hellish night, part of the walls of the secret laboratory. I speak of West's decadence, but must add that it was a purely mental and intangible thing, Outwardly, he was the same to the last, calm, cold, slight. Blue eyes and a general aspect of youth which years and fears seemed never to change. He seemed calm 
even when he thought of that clawed grave and looked over his shoulder, even when he thought of the carnivorous thing that gnawed and pawed at the Sefton bars. The end of Herbert West began one evening in our joint study when he was dividing his curious glances between the newspaper and me. A strange headline item had struck at him from the crumpled pages, and a nameless titan claw had seemed to reach down through sixteen years. Something fearsome and incredible had happened at Sefton Asylum, fifty miles away, stunning the neighborhood and baffling the police. In the small hours of the morning, a body of silent men had entered the grounds, and their leader had aroused the attendants. He was a menacing military figure who talked without moving his lips and whose voice seemed almost ventriloquially connected with an immense black case he carried. His expressionless face was handsome to the point of radiant beauty, but had shocked the superintendent when the hall light fell upon it for it was a wax face with eyes of painted glass. Some nameless accident had befallen this man. A larger man guided his footsteps, a repellent bulk whose bluish face seemed half eaten away by some unknown malady. The speaker had asked for the custody of the cannibal monster committed from Arkham sixteen years before and upon being refused, gave a signal which precipitated a shocking riot. The fiends had beaten, trampled, and bitten every attendant who did not flee, killing four, and finally succeeding in the liberation of the monster. Those victims who could recall the event without hysteria swore that the creatures had acted less like men than like unthinkable automata guided by the wax-faced leader. By the time help could be summoned, every trace of the men and of their man charge had vanished. From the hour of reading this item until midnight, West sat almost paralyzed. At midnight, the doorbell rang, startling him fearfully. I answered the bell. As I've told the police, there was no wagon in the street but only a group of strange-looking figures bearing a large square box which they deposited in the hallway after one of them had grunted in a highly unnatural voice, Express, prepaid. They filed out of the house with a jerky tread, and as I watched them go, I had an odd idea that they were turning toward the ancient cemetery on which the back of the house abutted. When I slammed the door after them, West came downstairs and looked at the box. It was about two foot square and bore West's correct name and present address. It also bore the inscription from Eric Moreland Clapham Lee, St. Eloy, Flanders. Six years before, in Flanders, a shelled hospital had fallen upon the headless, reanimated trunk of Dr. Clapham Lee and upon the detached head, which perhaps had uttered articulate sounds. West was not even excited now. His condition was more ghastly. Quickly he said, It's the finish, but let's incinerate this. We carried the thing down to the laboratory, listening. I don't remember many particulars. You can imagine my state of mind 
but it is a vicious lie to say it was Herbert West's body which I put into the incinerator. We both inserted the whole unopened wooden box, closed the door, and started the electricity. Nor did any sound come from the box. It was West who first noticed the falling plaster on that part of the wall where the ancient tomb masonry had been uncovered. I was going to run, but he stopped me. Then I saw a small black aperture, felt a ghoulish wind of ice, and smelled the charnel bowels of a putrescent earth. There was no sound, but just then the electric lights went out, and I saw outlined against some phosphorescence of the nether world a horde of silent, toiling things which only insanity or worse could create. Their outlines were human, semi-human, fractionally human, and not human at all. The horde was grotesquely heterogeneous. They were removing the stones quietly, one by one, from the centuried wall. And then, as the breach became large enough, they came out into the laboratory in single file, led by a stalking thing with a beautiful head made of wax. A sort of mad-eyed monstrosity behind the leader seized on Herbert West. West did not resist or utter a sound. Then they all sprang at him and tore him to pieces before my eyes. Bearing the fragments away into that subterranean vault of fabulous abominations. West's head was carried off by the wax-headed leader who wore a Canadian officer's uniform. As it disappeared, I saw that the blue eyes behind the spectacles were hideously blazing with their first touch of frantic, visible emotion. Servants found me unconscious in the morning. West was gone. The incinerator contained only unidentifiable ashes. Detectives have questioned me, but what can I say? The Sefton tragedy they will not connect with West. Not that. Nor the men with the box whose existence they deny. I told them of the vault, but they pointed to the unbroken plaster wall and laughed. So I told no more. They imply that I'm either a madman or a murderer. Probably I'm mad. But I might not be mad if those accursed tomb legions had not been so silent. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. 
we do appreciate reviews. So if you have a chance, especially if you're an Apple listener, please do take a moment and send us a review. Thank you very much for listening. Hope hope you enjoyed it. And we'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.